Hello and welcome to this week's podcast version of Scripps 5 Must Know Things. This time for the Business Week ended 28th October 2022. This is Ian Haydock. This week, BMS looks to new launches amid patent challenges. Novartis prioritises high-value medicines and the US market. Biogen learns from Agihelm experiences. J&J builds myeloma franchise. And Asian BioVentures debate best strategies. Bristol-Myers Squibb's new drug launches are the growth engine that will power the company through a challenging period of patent losses, particularly later in the decade, and investors are keeping a close watch on the trajectory of those products, including three new first-in-class drugs that launched this year. Jessica Merrill writes the company's new product portfolio, which includes a total of nine drugs launched in the last three years, generated $553 million in the third quarter, Growth of 61% over the prior year, third quarter, BMS reported on 25th October. Of the three new drugs that launched this year, only the immuno-oncology combination product Obduralag for melanoma generated any material sales in the quarter with $84 million in revenues. The other two drugs, Camzios for obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and SOTIC-2 for psoriasis were approved by the US FDA in April and September, respectively. It's early days for the TYK2 inhibitor SOTIC-2, but the company has big expectations for the new oral entry in the blockbuster-sized market for psoriasis drugs. Securing reimbursement in a competitive category is key to success. Building high volumes that can then return big rebates to payers has become a critical element to securing a strong market access position in more competitive therapeutic areas in the US. Chief Commercialization Officer Chris Berner said SOTIC2 has experienced solid week-over-week acceleration in prescriptions since launching in September. The majority of the use right now that we are getting is coming from the community setting. That's really important because about 80% of the volume in this setting is going to be in the community, Werner said. For the cardiomyopathy drug Camzios, securing strong market access isn't as much of the challenge as preparing prescribers to monitor and treat patients, given that the drug was approved by the FDA with a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy that requires frequent echocardiogram monitoring for individuals receiving the drug. BMS reported a 3% decline in revenues to $11.2 billion in the third quarter, largely due to Revlimid as well as headwinds from foreign exchange. The first generic versions of Revlimid in the US launched earlier this year, but only on a volume-limited basis under a patent settlement agreement. The phased approach gives the company more time to manage through the loss of exclusivity, but also draws the impact out further over time until 2026, when the limits end. Off-colour performances for a number of innovative medicines took the shine off Novartis's third quarter, although the Swiss firm did enjoy a strong launch trajectory for Pluvicto and positive top-line data for potential pipeline in a pill, Iptacopan, as it prepares for its new chapter as a pure-play pharma firm. Alex Shemmings writes that against currency headwinds, profits in the quarter were hit by restructuring costs and generic competition, including to multiple sclerosis blockbuster Gilenya. But CEO Vas Narasimhan confirmed 2022 group guidance for both sales and operating income to grow in mid-single digits in constant currencies. 
Guidance for Generics Unit Sandoz was upgraded for the second time this year, with sales now expected to grow at low to mid single digits, up from a previous low single digit forecast. This is a positive sign as we prepare for the spin-off next year, Narasimhan said. Overall, Novartis's Q3 sales of $12.54 billion, minus 4% or plus 4% constant currencies, were 2% shy of consensus, with Sandoz's $2.24 billion performance helped by a one-time rebate adjustment for biosimilars. Innovative medicines sales growth was particularly strong in the US, with an increase of 8%. Sales of top seller Cosentix were up by 2% to $1.27 billion, but missed consensus by 5% as rebate adjustments in the US kicked in. Entresto sales were also slightly behind expectations by 1% in the quarter at $1.14 billion, but the big earner still showed healthy 23% growth, or 31% at constant currencies. More concerning was the performance of Novartis's spinal muscular atrophy gene therapy, Zolgensma, sales of which fell by 15% to $319 million in Q3. It looks like future growth will now be driven primarily by the incidence population. Now, Simhan added that Zolgensma was expected to be a $1.5 to $2 billion steady-state medicine in the IV setting for children under two years, but the hope is that Novartis's ongoing trial of the intrathecal version for patients up to 18 years will broaden the population to those patients currently on chronic therapy with an antisense oligonucleotide. This could make Zolgensma a multi-billion dollar medicine over time, Narasimhan predicted. Biogen and partner Azai have a second shot at the Alzheimer's commercial market with the potential launch of Lecanemab in the US next year. And the key question is what the companies will do differently from the failed launch of Aduhel in 2021. Jessica Merrill writes a lot remains uncertain, including whether the drug will be granted an accelerated approval by the US FDA and what Biogen's role will be in its commercialization. But Biogen's management said during the company's 25th October third quarter call that it expects to incorporate lessons learned from the Agihelm experience. Biogen and Azi have a 50-50 profit sharing and co-commercialization arrangement on the Canimab but Azai is serving as a lead on the development and regulatory submissions globally and has final decision-making authority over the product. There are learnings from the Adjahelm situation that obviously we share openly, Chief Financial Officer Michael McDonnell told investors. I do feel very highly confident that you'll see a commercial ramp in spend that will have much better proximity to revenue than what you saw on Adjahelm. Biogen CEO Mikhail Vernatsos agreed the launch would be more right-sized to suit a potential accelerated approval for a drug in Alzheimer's disease now that the US Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has listed the reimbursement of drugs in that setting. Biogen and its investors appear to have a more measured outlook for lecanemab, which is pending at the FDA for accelerated approval with a 6th January action date. Azai is planning to seek full approval by the end of the first quarter of 2023 based on the positive results of the Phase 3 Clarity AD trial. With Adjahelm, Biogen had prepared for a blockbuster launch, but the investment never paid off because CMS all but curtailed any Medicare reimbursement of beta amyloid clearing therapies cleared by accelerated approval based on a surrogate biomarker, except for when patients are enrolled in a randomised clinical trial.
Biogen ended up implementing $1 billion cost cuts as it scaled back the Agihelm commercial plan. On the commercial infrastructure, there's not a lot that can or will be repurposed from Agihelm, McDonald said. For the most part, the Lacanimab commercialization will be a new ramp and a new infrastructure that will be built. Lacanimab is one of the few bright spots for Biogen which is otherwise facing a challenging growth period as most of its core franchises have come under pressure, including Tecfidera, Spinraza and Biosimilars. Biogen's third quarter revenues declined 10% to $2.51 billion, although the financial results were in line with analyst expectations. Johnson & Johnson has its third multiple myeloma product and its second BCMA targeting therapy in the US with the 25th October approval of Tecveli for the fifth line or later treatment of relapsed or refractory myeloma. The product marks the next step in the big farmer's approach to building a multidrug myeloma franchise. Mandy Daxon writes the US FDA cleared the bispecific antibody for use after four or more prior lines of therapy including a proteasome inhibitor, immunomodulatory drug, and an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody. Tecveli joins two other multiple myeloma treatments in the J&J Janssen portfolio. The blockbuster CD38 inhibitor Darzelex and the BCMA-targeting CAR-T therapy Carvicti, approved in the US as a fifth-line or later myeloma treatment in February. Tecveli is administered as a once-weekly subcutaneous injection after three initial loading doses at day one, four and seven. We really see Carvicti as just being revolutionary, but unfortunately because of the complex manufacturing that's required, we won't have enough Carvicti for the current patients that are in need, so there's still a huge unmet need. Janssen's president of US Oncology, Tyrone Brewer, told Scripps, that's what makes us so excited about Tecveli because they do have similar patient populations in terms of heavily pre-treated individuals that at this point have very limited options. Because Tecveli comes with similar potentially severe side effects as CAR-T therapies, including cytokine release syndrome, its label carries a boxed warning for CRS and ICANs. The product is also available only through a restricted program under a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy for monitoring and treating these adverse events. With its top-selling product, Stellara set to lose market exclusivity in the US in late 2023. J&J is under pressure to add drugs to its portfolio. Multiple myeloma is one disease area where the company has laid the groundwork for an entire franchise that could generate significant sales from individual products and combinations of multiple Janssen-developed therapies. Finally, the challenges and opportunities of running a bioventure depend on which country it's based in and which market the business is focused on. And it matters too for large pharma firms in search for the next novel R&D seeds across the APAC region. The recent BioJapan 2022 conference, speakers from bioventures and large pharma firms in South Korea, Japan and Taiwan joined a panel discussion to talk about their views of each market, Lisa Takagi reports. One key thread was that large US opportunities had largely provided the motivation to develop new modalities. The booming market from China's ageing society and the need for new and innovative modalities in Korea are also driving support for bioventures 
helped by positive government policies in those countries, the Yokohama meeting heard. According to several speakers, these background factors appear to make venture capital investors more enthusiastic about funding by ventures there compared to Japanese VCs, a point which has made financing of clinical trial development relatively easier in both China and Korea. A couple of presenters also raised the possibility of collaboration between Korean and Japanese ventures to ensure effective support for new drugs, given the extensive attractive seed research being conducted within Japanese academia. The talk session, hosted by MSD, which is Merkinko, included three participants from BioVentures, which all have operations in both Asia and the US, including Brandon Ryu, who's CEO of South Korean RNA therapeutics firm BioOrchestra, and Sung Jin Park, CEO of One Gene Biotechnology, a Korean immuno-oncology venture. Commonly, the most realistic investor exit for many BioVentures in Japan and Korea is an initial public offering, Ryu and Park said although Ryu noted that everybody in the Korea bioventure sector understands the benefit of M&A, especially for the R&D sector from the many examples in the US. While searching for potential partners in Asia, the main target market for venture firms is the US. As for fundraising, both Park and Masaomi Miyamoto, who's Executive Vice President of R&D and Operations at Taiwan's Aprinoya Therapeutics, noted government policies in individual countries are also critical. Ryu and Park referred to recent policy moves by the Korean government to inject money in local VCs to accelerate funding for domestic ventures. There is also official support for entry into the US market. The Japanese government has also recently put in place similar policies. However, Ken Fujimura, who's lead of Takeda's Center for External Innovation in Japan and APAC, pointed out a typical difference between startups in the two countries. Korean bioventures tend to adopt strategies with a high risk and high return, while Japanese ventures employ strategies with a low risk, low return, he said. Later in the discussions, several speakers agreed there would be a theoretical, ideal form of potential collaboration between Korean and Japanese partners in the venture arena. One possibility would be to bring compounds or antibodies found by Japanese academia to a Korean bioventure to optimize these, and then develop them together until phase one or phase two trials, suggested moderator Koji Yashira, who's MSD's Director of Asia-Pacific Business Development and Licensing. That's all for this episode. Many thanks for listening. All the articles mentioned today are linked in full in the story accompanying this podcast and do log in to access all of our much more extensive content. If you don't already subscribe, you can take a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.